0: And as you're taking your seats, please grab your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4. As many of you know, Pastor Andrew, our lead teaching pastor, he's been away for the last few weeks, just taking some much-needed time with his family over the summer. Uh, And I want to thank you for praying for him. I hear it's been a good time for he and his family away very refreshing time, Uh, so he will be coming back later on this week, and I just ask that you continue to pray for he and his family as they're traveling, just pray that the Lord would bring them safely back to us, so thank you for those prayers, and continue to pray for them. I want to ask a question as we get started this morning, on one hand it's a very simple question. But on the other hand, it's, it's very complex, the answer is. So here it is. What is it that you love this morning? What do you love? What do you want or what do you desire? A high-quality cup of coffee early in the morning when it's still a little bit brisk and no one else is awake. I heard an amen. Thank you for that. appreciate that. And you just have time. Time to read, time to pray, time to relax, but it's just you, no one's up and you have a phenomenal cup of coffee. Or that feeling you get when you have a long list of tasks and you're working at it all day, all week, and you finally do it. You finish everything on that list and you can just rest. Or the love of a friend who knows you and you know them. A friend where both of you can be open and honest and and transparent with one another. A friend who knows how to encourage you, knows what to say and when you need to hear it. Maybe your children, uh, your family, your friends, uh, your spouse. There are many loves in our lives, but when you hear those things, you instinctively know that not all loves are created equal. The love for that cup of coffee in the morning, as, as much uh, love you have for that, it really pales into comparison to the love you have for your children or the love that you have for your spouse or a friend. But what happens when these things that we really love begin to compete with each other? What happens when, when these loves that we have are by nature mutually exclusive, meaning you may love more than one thing, but in this situation you can only have one. What happens when you love God's good gift of food? Because it is wonderful. And you wanna enjoy all of those gifts anytime you want, but you also want to be fit. You wanna be in shape, you wanna be healthy. Or you want your life to be scheduled just so, I like my rhythm, I like my routine, and these are the things that I love. This is what I want. But there are times when you want to be a little spontaneous. You you want flexibility to be in your schedule as well. Where you want the Instagram-worthy hobby farm. You want it to shine in all of its glory with all of these animals but you don't want to pay for those animals and you don't want to take care of them and you don't want smells and sounds you don't want any of that you see the list of things that we want is very very long and sometimes those desires that we have are at odds with one another in other words you cannot have both Sure, you may try to, to give a little here and take a little there and straddle that line to try to get both, but sometimes we have desires that, we, that, that require only one choice. It's either this or that, because saying yes to one love is also saying no to the other love. And this is the very nerve at which James is going to press on this morning in James' Chapter 4, he's going to address the reality of desires in our life, but he's going to drive us to the realization that we can't be torn by our desires. We can't live kind of straddling this line between the desires that I want apart from God and the desires that I want that are God himself. We will either choose God or we will choose the world because we cannot have both. Now, a little bit of context to get us started here. You'll remember that the book of James is a pastoral letter written to Jewish Christians who were experiencing persecution. They had been ejected from their homeland, wherever they were living. They had been kicked out, and they have been relocated. But the persecution has not stopped. They were experiencing uh, external strife, external pressures, but they were also experiencing internal pressures and strife among the body of believers. You see, the way that the world was thinking, their values and the system, was was in danger of seeping into the church and affecting how they lived. And James is writing to a group of people who are living with a divided faith. James, throughout his letters, coins this term, double-mindedness, this double-mindedness. In chapter 1, he talks about this double-minded man and he warns that he is unstable in all of his ways. In chapter 2, he addresses this double-mindedness because the people are saying, we love God and we love our neighbors as ourselves, while at the same time showing partiality and showing favoritism, uh, uh, preferring the wealthy people among them while pushing the poorer people to the peripheries. In James chapter 3, he addresses this double-mindedness with, with how they talk. See, these believers were glorifying God and blessing God in one, with one breath, but on the same hand, with a second breath, they were cursing other believers made in the image of God. And right before our passage, there's this talk about wisdom. There is a way to do things, and these believers thought, well, I, I, I'm godly, I'm doing things the right way, but James is saying, no, you are living your life based on the wisdom that the world produces. And he continues this theme of double-mindedness in James chapter 4. In our passage, he's going to highlight their double-mindedness by showing them that their very hearts, their hearts, Affections are split between the world and God. And as we're going to see, the, this condition of being double-minded, divided in our faith, being split in our affections causes uh, dire consequences, terrible consequences. So, I trust you are there in James chapter 4. So, follow along with me as I read James chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask yet you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions you adulterous people Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, James's main point that we're going to see in this passage is that divided affections lead to devastating consequences. And so, as we walk through this passage, uh, the outline for this morning is going to be the results of these divided affections. So, four results of divided affections. Now, before we dive in, I've used that word a couple of times so far, affections. And we need to make sure that we are all on the same page, that you know what I mean when I say affections. You see, our affections, they include our emotions, but they go so far beyond our emotions. Yes, our affections are the things that we love, but they're also the things that we're devoted to. It's the things that we give our time and energy to. It's the things that we're committed to. It's, what, it's where your allegiances lie. And so this is what I mean when I talk about affections, so when those are split you can expect very uh, devastating consequences. So, let's dive in. Four results of divided affections. You see the first one there is fractured relationships. Divided affections lead to fractured relationships. We We see this in the first two verses. James is going to ask a question here, and that shouldn't be surprising to us. All throughout James's letter, he's been asking questions as a way to teach, as a way to highlight where their, where their thoughts are, and this is what we, what we see here in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James raises this question about the strife or the infighting that, that they're facing. Now, he uses two synonymous words here, this, the, the idea of quarrels and fights. I think he's using them metaphorically. He's almost using these two terms as an umbrella to kind of cover all of the things that they're facing, the the conflict and the fighting, the disagreements. And he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Remember, he's talking to believers and he's asking, why are there so many fights and quarrels in your assembly? Now, this is a great question to ask as a side note. This is a great question to ask yourself or someone that you're trying to help. How would you answer this question? I want you to think back to the last conflict that you had, whether it's in your marriage or between your children or um, coworkers, I mean, whatever it is. When you had that conflict, why, why was it there? What caused you to have conflict? You see, if you're anything like me, the temptation is to shift the blame, right? Well, I only, I only got in a fight with that person because they did fill in the blank or they should have known to do this and they didn't, so therefore, dot, dot, dot. Or my coworker was so inconsiderate and they didn't do or they did do. I mean, we are so tempted to shift the blame on anything other than ourselves. But... That's not what James says. That's not the answer that James gives to these conflicts. He answers this question by really shifting the focus on their hearts. And he answers it with another question in verse 1. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, what James does is he does not address the sin of conflict, but instead he addresses the sinful heart that pro uh, that produced the conflict. He says that your passions are at war within you. Now, this word here, passions, it's where we get our word hedonism from. It's, it's the idea of a pursuit of passions or pleasure or enjoyment. This is, this is what motivates you. I, I, I want enjoyment and I want pleasure. This is passions. Now, it's worth noting, not all passions are wrong, okay? Okay. God has given us many good gifts to enjoy so how do we tell the difference between a passion that is sinful and a passion that is good say a passion for my wife or a passion for God's glory well I think the sinful passion that James is talking about here can be placed in one of two categories a sinful passion is either something I want that God has explicitly said you should not have okay something that's black and white that's a sinful passion or a good passion, a good desire, listen, that I'm willing to sin in order to get. Those two categories of passions, I think that's what James is talking about here when he talks about their sinful, their sinful desires. He says that these passions are at war within you. There's, a, there's an internal conflict. Now, at risk of stating the obvious, In a war, you need at least two sides, right? There's side A and side B, and these things are fighting. Maybe more, but at the minimum, we need two. So if on one hand we have passions, these are sinful desires, what's on the other side? Well, at the moment of conversion, God gives us his spirit that dwells in us. And our old self dies, and we are made new. We are given a new nature And sin, Paul says, no longer reigns in the Christian, but it does remain. And Paul, I think, describes the internal conflict that James is talking about in Galatians chapter 5. Listen to verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So we have sinful desires, sinful passions, and they're butting up against these God-given desires to glorify God and honor God and obey God. And the conflict comes when I, mean, I, I want to do this, but I don't want to do this, but I kind of want to do this. And this is the internal passion, the war that, that James highlights here. But he takes a, a closer look in verse 2, and he, and he highlights this war that's going on, this, this what produces this battle. He says in verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, there are things that you want so badly that they have become your gods, and you are willing to fight in order to get them he says that you desire he's he's using really two two uh, statements here that are parallel and it really highlights the conflict you desire you don't get it so you murder there's something that you want so bad you want it with everything inside of you and you try to get it but you can't and what happens will you murder I don't think James here is saying that there's actual violence going on. I think James is saying that this is a heart matter. This is a heart issue. So at your heart, when you want something so bad and you can't get it, you go even to the extent of murdering someone in your heart. You act murderously because of what you want that you can't get. But he says that you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There is something that you see someone else has and it looks amazing, it looks great. And I want that. And I try as hard as I can. I do everything I can to get that thing, but I can't get it no matter how hard I try. And what happens? Well, I fight and I quarrel. So let me me summarize what James is saying here because I think this is where a lot of us live, okay? You need to hear what he's saying. At the heart of every sinful conflict is a desire left unfulfilled. In other words, the reason that you fight with the people you fight with, it's not because the pressure that you're under. It's not because of the other person or your past. It's not because of the stress of having to do all of these things I have to get done. That is not why you fight. The problem is not outside of yourself, but inside of yourself. At the heart of every conflict is something that you want that either you shouldn't want or something that you want so bad that you're willing to get it or you're willing to sin to get it and that's what produces conflict and we see this everywhere there is no relationship void of conflict around us we see it in our marriages don't we a husband comes home from a long day of work He's worked hard and he's looking forward to coming home. Why? What what does that husband want? I I mean, I've put in a long day, 10 hours, and I just need some time to rest. This is the first time in 10 hours that I can actually sit down. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything wrong with that desire? Absolutely not. Rest is a good thing. It is a very good thing. But his wife, eagerly waits for, his hus- for her husband to get home. She's wanting him to come home. She's looking forward to it after a long day with the kids and cleaning the house. And what does she want? I just need some help. I've been running, chasing these little kids all day. They're making messes. Would you please, would you please help me? Help me wrangle these kids. Now, is there anything wrong with the desire for help? Absolutely not. There is nothing wrong, but, but the conflict arises when these desires take priority and people are willing to fight in order to get what they want. You see, their spouse in that situation, they either become a vehicle to get what I want or they become an obstacle in the way of what I want. And when these desires are kind of fleshed out, what does it produce? It produces conflict. They're both in conflict And this is just one small example of a story that could be told hundreds of different ways and in hundreds of different uh, contexts. But regardless of what context it's in, the truth always remains the same. And don't miss it. If there is conflict among you, whether it's in your marriage or in your church or with your children, your family, whatever, it's always an issue of the heart. It is not enough to fix behaviors, okay? I, you need to listen to me. James doesn't correct their fighting by saying, stop fighting. Just, just love the other person. Be, be patient. Be gentle. That's not what James says. Are those things wrong? Should we be gentle and patient? Absolutely, but that's not the corrective. We cannot fix this by external behaviors. The answer is to address the conflict in your heart. The answer is to address the desires that are at war within you. So, I'll ask again, what is it that you want? What do you desire? What do you love? What are you willing to sin in order to get? In other words, what are your affections set on this morning? When our affections are divided, uh, when we set our affections on these things that they shouldn't be set on, there is damage done to our relationship. They become fractured. But James goes on to show the second result of divided affection, and that is a hindered prayer life. Divided affections lead to a hindered prayer life. We see this in verses 2 and 3. He says in verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight in quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. There is conflict because they want something and they're unable to get it. And James says, well, uh, the reason that you don't have those two things, it's it's either one of two reasons. First, you either just don't ask God for it. You see, it's not wrong to want things. God has given us many good gifts in order that… That would stir stir our affections for Him. We would enjoy these gifts and be satisfied with God. Look to God as a giver of these things, okay? And God has established a way for you and I to get the things that we want, and that is prayer, not mechanical. God's not a slave to prayer. We looked at that in James chapter 5. But God says, if you want anything, come to me, ask me for it. But that's not what they did. Earlier in the passage, we saw that they're fighting and they're they're doing what they can to get what they want. So, they either don't ask and they don't have what they want and they fight, or they ask for wrong motives. They go to God and ask, but God doesn't give it to them. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That is, you're asking for things, which is good, but God's not giving them to you because the motive behind the request is actually sinful. You see, these believers are asking God for what they want so that they can do what they want. And this is much different than how we ought to pray. We, we should be praying, Lord, if it's your will, I, I want these things, but if, if this is the best, if this is in my best interest for your glory, Would you please give it to me? That's how we should pray. But James says that they they ask God to give them the things that they want in order to satisfy their sinful passions. You see, they're so enamored with the things that they want that they're asking God for the thing that they will eventually replace Him with. When our affections shift from God to the things that He gives, we relegate God to Santa Claus or a divine genie or a divine slot machine who exists only to give us the things that we want. This would be the equivalent, this praying like this. This would be the equivalent of you going to your spouse and asking for gas money so that you could drive around the town and meet up with your various lovers. I mean that's that's the stinging accusation that James levels against these people. You ask for the thing that you want to cheat on God with and surprisingly God withholds it. One author puts kind of what we're talking about it this way, he says, we have tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a God who is a divine vending machine in the sky there to meet every need. Unhappy. Unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried or unfulfilled? Come to Christ and He'll give you everything that you want. We forget that God is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. When we make Him out to be, we squeeze Him out of His rightful place at the center of our lives and we put ourselves in His place. God is in the business of being God. So the obvious question. What do your prayers sound like? What do you ask God for? What do you want God to give you? Are your prayers centered on God? Lord, I want to pray like my Lord did. I want to pray like Christ did. So, Father, you are holy. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And if it's your will, would you please give me these things? Or... Do we pray, Lord, I really, really, really want this thing, so would you please give it to me? I don't care how it happens. I know it might be good or bad, but we're not talking about that. I really, really want this thing. Would you give it to me? Are prayers centered on God, or are they centered on my wants, my desires, and my pleasures? So I ask again, what is it that you love or desire or want? What are your affections placed on? So James says that divided affections, they fracture relationships. They hinder our prayer life. But we also have a third result in verse 4, and that's opposition to God. Opposition to God. Divided affections lead to opposition to God. We see this in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James here uses very, very strong language, and I think he does it to almost shake them awake and to show them the seriousness of what they're doing. The original word here is actually a feminine word, this this word here, adulterous people. That's a feminine word, so literally it reads, you adulteresses, or you female adulterers. See, he uses this term to point these people back to the Old Testament, we read in the Old Testament that God has joined Himself to His people in a covenantal relationship. And that covenantal relationship is often described in terms of marriage. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. God speaking through Jeremiah. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. So all throughout the Old Testament, though, when God's people commit idolatry, that is, they go and worship other things, God often uh, condemns them as committing the sin of adultery. And one of the places, one of the clearest places we see this is in Hosea. In Hosea's chapters 1 through 3, we see God coming to this prophet And telling him, I want you to marry this woman who will eventually be unfaithful to you. And he does it so that his people would have this living, breathing illustration of their unfaithfulness to God. So James picks up on this idea and tells these believers that they are committing the same sins as these Old Testament Jews. They are committing spiritual adultery. What is adultery? It's going to something else or someone else for your satisfaction, for your protection, for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. And that is what these believers are doing. But James goes on to show how they've committed adultery in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He asks another question and it seems like he's expecting them to know this. It's like, obviously, you should know friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, this might strike us as a little strange. Why does James talk about friendship in the context of spiritual adultery? We we might expect something a little bit different, but James talks about this idea of friendship. And I think the misunderstanding here is on the idea of friendship itself. You see, we think if you know my first name or if you know what my children's names are or if you know where I live or you've pushed that accept button when I send you a friend request on whatever social media that I am that we're friends and really that's sort of an acquaintance friendship in James's day indicated something much different it indicated uh, this idea of identification to and a relationship with someone or something in other words, friendship for James in the first century refers to the love someone has for something as the object of one's affections. It has the ideas of commitment, association, shared values, and loyalty. But what is the object of their friendship? What are these people friends with? Well, it's, it's the world. Now, James is not saying, hey... Uh, you cannot have unbelieving friends because that's friendship with the world. That's not, that's not true. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus in His high priestly prayer prays that we wouldn't be taken out of the world because we are to be salt and light and we need to have interaction with the world. What James is talking about here is the world in the sense of collection, the collection of fallen humanity's institutions, values, and traditions. It is close association and friendship with the world's values. What does the world value? Well, it says that happiness comes from putting me first. I am ultimately what matters. I have to fight for myself because no one else will. And even if it means harming someone or putting someone else down, well, that's, that's what I need to do because that's the only way that I will be happy. The world says that you're only as important as your possessions. Where do you live? How how big is your house? What kind of car do you drive? Or what experiences have you ever had? Have you done this? Have you gone there? Have you experienced this? These are the things that the world places value on and these things are in opposition to God. That's what James says. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world also chooses to be at odds or with enmity. And, and enmity is not a, a word we use often. What does that mean? Well, it has the idea of expressing hatred or hostility to someone or something. And this shouldn't be surprising to us. We, we all know that this is true. If there was a man who was hell-bent on cheating on his wife... Would he not then be the enemy of that marriage and the enemy of his wife's well-being? And James doesn't tell us anything new. All James is doing is echoing what Jesus himself said. Listen to Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You are either a friend of the world or friend of God. You cannot straddle that line. You cannot have it both ways. And then James goes on and makes application in the last part of verse 4. He says, Therefore, in light of this truth, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is, if your desire, if your wish, if what you really want is to be a friend of the world, to be associated and connected with its values, You're making a choice to stand in opposition to God because you're showing, I love the world. That's what's valuable. That's what's precious. That's what my affections are set on. Now, here's the danger. As I was preparing this message, as I thought about James's warning against worldliness or friendship with the world, it seems as though we could hear this warning and think... Well, friendship with the world is going to look like this very long list of things that I do or I don't do or I dress this way or I don't dress this way or I say these things or I don't say these things. Now, I, I, I think to summarize that, we can, we can equate worldliness with behaviors, with external uh, behaviors. And I think that there's a connection there. Yes, what, what I value will kind of work itself out in what I do and how I act. But I think James is driving at something deeper than behaviors. Remember, how does he address the conflicts in, in, in verse 1? Well, he doesn't say stop fighting or, or change this or do this. He says it's a heart issue. It's a heart matter. So I think, I think this is the point that he's showing us. He points to our desires or our hearts Instead of restricting this warning to a list of do's and don'ts, we need to hear it as a warning against a heart or a passion or a desire to be like the world, to think like the world, or to have their values as ours, because the solution, the remedy to this is your heart. It's always been your heart, and it's from the outflow of the heart that we can begin to change. So. We're seeing, really, in this passage how important affections are. When our affections are divided, it leads to fractured relationships, it leads to hindered prayers, it leads to opposition to God. And here's the last result of divided affections that we're going to see this morning. It's opposition by God. Divided affections lead to opposition by God, and we see this in verses 5 through 6. What James does is rounds out this warning with a reinforcement from the Bible that shows that verse 4 is true. James shows why friendship with the world means that you will be God's enemy, and here in verses 5 and 6, we see how God responds to someone with fractured or or with divided affections. Look at verse 5. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? James shows that really the, the Scripture itself makes this same point. He asks another question, like, don't you know that the Scripture says this? Or do you think the Bible doesn't mean what it says? And what does it say here? Well, this is prove difficulty. In, in your Bible, you may have quotations around this, this phrase here, this, this section, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But it's unclear what text James is citing here, and I will admit that the translation of this verse is very difficult. You may have a translation that reads a little bit differently. But I think that ESV, does, I, I appreciate how it's translated, he yearns, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit, God's spirit, that he has made to dwell in us. So what is the, the kernel of this truth found in the Old Testament that James is citing? Well, I think the, the context or the flow of his argument so far is really instructive as we read verse 5. I think it's clear. At the point of regeneration, God puts his spirit to dwell inside of us. And he is jealous of of his ownership of us. We are not our own, but we are bought with a price. We belong to God. He is our, we are his bride, and he is our husband or our God. And when we have wayward hearts, he is jealous over those affections. He wants our affections to be placed on him. You see, God is rightly, rightly and justly jealous for your affection and for mine." Don't miss what James is doing here. James has just charged them with spiritual adultery with God, and you and I would expect James to continue to heap on condemnation. How dare you do this? Don't you know what you've done? That's not what he does. He shifts our focus and their attention onto God's love. You see, you and I have been recipients of God's love. We are His and we belong to Him. And He loves us with a genuine, true, and real love. And if that's how God loves us, it is always, always jealous for our affections. A way to illustrate this. I love my wife, okay? I really love my wife. But imagine we're getting ready, uh, we're on the couch, we're going to get ready to spend some time together, whether that's with a movie or read a book or something. And, and Sarah's sitting there and I come beside my wife and I wrap my arms around my wife. And I say, Sarah, of all of the women I love tonight, I love you the most. <laughs> now, if I said that, there would be some problems going on. There would be some physical altercations Um, I would be in danger. (laughs) Now, we laugh, but why do we laugh? Number one, that's outlandish a little bit. Who really does that? But also, we kind of laugh because we have this image of Sarah pummeling me. And it's, listen, it's expected. It's expected that she would respond to that. But why? Because my wife, she loves me. And she is justified in wanting all of my affection, listen, because it rightly belongs to her. She deserves every part of my undivided heart. She would be jealous if my affection was given to anyone or anything else. And listen, God loves you with a love that is unimaginable. So much so that Paul writes, he prays, that you and I would begin to wrap our minds around the love of God that he has for us. We need help in understanding it. And because of that love, there is absolutely no way that God would stand by and let you chase after something else that is vying for your affection. He is jealous for it because he rightly deserves it in verse six talks about God opposes the proud person. If you stand in opposition to God, if your affections are divided, if you love something else, God will not stand idly by, he will oppose you. But this isn't where James ends. Praise the Lord, it's not where he ends. He has just laid out God's rightful jealousy, but James finishes his thought on a promise of God's grace. Look at verse 6, it says, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His first part, but God gives more grace. You see, God wants all of our affections, but you and I know how hard it is to our shame to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But James says that God will give more grace. This grace that is unmerited favor expressed out through the working of His Spirit. Listen, it's able to meet the demands of God's jealousy, of God's jealous affection. And it's able to overcome our sins. All of the ways that your affections have been divided. God gives more grace. His grace can cover those sins because his son was sent to die on our behalf his son was a recipient of the punishment that you and I deserve so therefore this unmerited favor can cover those sins but beyond that this grace is enough to help us as we struggle with our divided affections as we struggle with all of the things that catch our attention because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness Jesus knows what it's like and in that battle And the fray. You're not alone. God's grace is sufficient and it is there. James says God gives more grace. But there's a stipulation to this grace that we can receive. The one who is proud can only expect opposition from God. That is the one who refuses to acknowledge God, who wraps up their selfishness and self-sufficiency and arrogance, who thinks I don't need God, or, hey, God, just give me what I want. I'm fine. I just want what you give. That is what the Bible calls a proud person, and that person can only expect opposition, like I said. However, there's someone else here. There's this humble person, and this person who humbles himself is a recipient of God's grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now I want you to notice, in light of everything that James has just said, he he doesn't go here with God resists the proud but gives grace to those who show themselves worthy of it. God resists the proud but gives grace to those who try really, really hard and shows me that they're serious and shows me that they can put forth the effort to make themselves worthy of my sacrifice and the grace that I'm able to give. It's not what James says. How do we get this grace? Well, it's, it's, it's to be humble. The solution is not a set of actions, but a hard disposition that says, God, you're right. I have lived with divided affections. I've, I've chased after things that I know have been sinful, and I've chased after things that weren't wrong, but, Father, I was willing to sin in order to get them I see it as spiritual adultery, and Lord, I humble myself before you. I can't do it on my own. Would you please help me? This is, this is humility, and this is the humility that God will honor by extending grace. Now, all throughout this message this morning, I've tried to bring us back to this very important, crucial question about our affections, and we've seen James lay out this long list of damage of, of, of terrible consequences that we can expect from divided affections. So, let me ask you again, what do you love? What do you want? What do you desire? What are your affections set on? I keep asking this question because I know the tendency of the human heart because I'm the same way. I. I I struggle, because my affections get latched on to so many things that they shouldn't. But I also know my heart, and its, it's unique in its ability to deceive. What I mean by that is you may be sitting here thinking, praise the Lord, my affections are completely on God, when in reality, your affections may be divided. So I wanna end this morning very quickly by asking a few diagnostic questions really to help you evaluate your affections. Because my goal this morning is to help you hear James' warning about the danger of divided affections. So quick six questions, I want you to listen. What disappoints you? I mean, what, what really disappoints you? When you feel overwhelmed by disappointment, it's a sign that whatever has caused that disappointment is very important or very valuable to you. So, what disappoints you? Something with your career, a relationship, or a lack of relationship, or something to do with your children, or finances. What disappoints you? Number two, what do you complain most about? Now, this goes a little bit deeper than our disappointments to really what we express. And this might be a good time really to get an outside opinion. You should ask your spouse, ask your friends, whoever knows you best. Hey, uh, you know, I know I don't complain a whole bunch, but on the rare occasion that I do, what, what do I complain about? Do I complain about my financial situation? I wish we made more money. Do I complain about... Uh, my wife or my my husband or spouses about intimacy or lack thereof or I want more love, why don't you give me love? Why don't you give me respect? I mean, what do you complain about? Number three, where do you make financial sacrifices? In other words, where does your money go? Because Jesus says where our treasure is is where our heart is. So where do you make financial sacrifices? Number four? what worries you what keeps you up at night because whatever that is would by nature be important so what causes you to worry number five what infuriates you what really makes you upset what makes you mad and number six lastly where is your sanctuary Where do you go when things are falling apart around you? Where do you go when you're hurting, when you can't see any hope anywhere? Where do you go? After asking those questions, and those are complex as well, right? Something that worries you doesn't necessarily mean that you love that enough to sin to get it, but maybe. So as we walk through those six questions, if your affections are on God, praise the Lord. Let me me encourage you to keep looking to Jesus. Let me rejoice with you that your affections are on God. But but if not, if there is a question about your affections, these questions have helped you see that maybe, maybe your affections are actually divided, then I want you to hear what James tells you, humble yourself. Turn to God in repentance. Seek Him. Place your affections wholly and completely on Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we readily admit, I readily admit and confess that I am prone to wander. I'm prone to leave You because I'm prone to latch on to so many things, my affections are so prone to, to want things that it shouldn't want or want good things that I'm willing to sin in order to get. but Father, I praise you that the solution to this is not try harder, it's humility. It's humbling ourselves. And Father, I thank you for uh, believers here whose affections are set on you, and I pray for those whose affections may be divided, that, that you would make that clear. That, that you would enable them, that you would give them the grace to overcome those sins and that they, along with myself, would, would seek you humbly, would, would love you. That our affections would be placed on you. And Father, that is, that is my prayer this morning, that we would be a body of believers whose affections are completely placed on you. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.